So we want to, um, to think a little bit for the course of our study this evening uh, about the first three Gospels and particularly about some of the small differences in the text that illuminate uh, one of the themes of the third Gospel. There's a, there's a subtlety uh, to the first three Gospels that when we read through them as we're doing our daily readings, for example, uh, then they appear similar and much of the material overlaps between the three Gospels. And yet when we read them carefully, there's a greater variation in the things they record and the way in which they record them than perhaps we immediately recognize or appreciate. That The first three Gospels are like very complex symphonies that cannot be simply distilled into a singular theme. Uh, but they've got a whole range of themes working together in harmony, interlaced together, that intricately portray uh, their particular presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to take um, some examples of those small differences between them this evening and consider uh, perhaps that a small difference can have a big implication in terms of the meaning or the emphasis uh, which the Spirit through the Scripture is presenting to us. And I suppose that really in the reading that we've taken from Luke chapter 5 this evening, it's a relatively large difference uh, between Luke's account and that of Matthew and Mark in terms of its record of the call of the fishermen uh, to be disciples. It's quite obvious perhaps that the record in Luke is quite different and quite expanded on the equivalent section in Matthew and Mark. Let, let's just go to, to Mark for a moment because we've read together Luke chapter 5 to, to pick up Mark's account of the, the call of the fishermen in Mark chapter 1. Now the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, agree together in presenting to us the call of the fishermen and then a little later the call of Matthew as particular models for the calling of disciples or models for discipleship within these gospels and yet they do it in a different way and that's particularly apparent in terms of uh, the call of the fishermen. So Mark chapter 1 and verse 16 now, now, as he, Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. But when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. So there we get the same call of the fishermen that we've just read in Luke chapter 5, yet much smaller in compass without the detail of the miracle that we read in chapter 5 that supplies the information as to why on this particular occasion it was necessary for the fishermen to mend their nets at the time when the Lord called them. Uh, and Luke's record, uh, however, focuses particularly on an individual, 
it focuses particularly on Peter's call as a disciple, although it mentions both James and John, uh, but unlike Matthew and Mark, makes no reference uh, to Andrew. Uh, now, it's not only the, the level of detail that we find different, it's also the, the sequencing in the Gospels in the way in which the incidents from the life of the Lord are recorded. So let's just follow this through if we can. So if we take Mark's record, for example, then we begin with, or if we begin in chapter one with the temptation in the wilderness, then the record moves to the call of the fishermen. Then it goes on to events in Capernaum, notably the healing of a man with an unclean spirit within the context of the synagogue. Uh, similarly, in Capernaum, the healing of Simon's mother-in-law. Uh, then that evening, uh, multiple acts of healing within Capernaum. Uh, and then the detail of the healing of a leper on another occasion. Now, Matthew is quite different in terms of the record that we have in the first gospel. If we start again with the temptation in the wilderness, like Mark we proceed to the call of the fishermen, uh, but in Matthew's gospel, then immediately we get the lengthy section that we familiarly know as the Sermon on the Mount. And following the Sermon on the Mount that encompasses chapters five to seven of Matthew, then we come to the healing of the leper. Uh, so we get the healing of the leper in a different position in the sequence to the way in which we find it in Mark. Then we get the healing of the centurion's servant, which we don't find in Mark at all. And we find in Luke a few chapters later out of the sequence in Matthew. And then we get the events in Capernaum, but with no reference to the healing of the unclean spirit in the synagogue, uh, but to the reference to the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, followed the same day by the evening healing in Capernaum. So, so Matthew, within the, the context of that gospel, with its major emphasis on significant dialogue, significant bodies of teaching by the Lord Jesus Christ, has introduced the Sermon on the Mount and then immediately followed it by the healing of the leper, taking that out of sequence if we allow Mark's record to be our guide. Now, Luke is different again in terms of the Spirit's account there. From the temptation in the wilderness, we go to the occasion of the address of the Lord and his teaching in the Nazareth synagogue. Again, found only in Luke's gospel, or certainly only in Luke's gospel, uh, with the level of information and detail uh, that we find in Luke chapter 4. Then from Nazareth, the Lord proceeds to Capernaum. We have the healing of the unclean spirit in the synagogue, the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, and the evening healing, exactly in the same sequence as we find them in Mark's gospel. But the call of the fishermen is placed in a different place in the ordering of events. And as we've noted already, with its greater emphasis upon Peter. In fact, in the third gospel, it's two individuals rather than a group of individuals who are going to be the models for discipleship. Whereas we have the fishermen as a group in Matthew and Mark. It's really Peter as an individual who's a model in Luke 
uh, together with Levi, as he's called in the third gospel, as he appears a little later in Luke chapter five. And then we have the healing of the leper. Um, and again, uh, then the call of the fisherman, uh, the, the incident we read in Luke chapter five is inserted within Mark's sequence between uh, the end of the healings in Capernaum on that one particular day and the healing of a leper, bringing particularly the juxtaposition of Peter's call uh, into connection uh, with the healing of the leper there. Uh, so, so clearly there's, there's something different going on, not only in the information, but in the ordering of the information, uh, which is significant and interesting for us. Now, let's uh, just spend a moment or two in Luke chapter 5, and uh, it would take all of our time if we went through this particular miracle in detail, but just to pick up a significant point uh, that the record is placing before us in the information here. So in Luke chapter 5, Jesus has entered into Simon's fishing boat and already forged a connection uh, between that boat which he has used for his preaching activity. Um, a connection that's going to be developed and enlarged when Peter the fisherman becomes a fisher of men. So having taught the people from Simon's boats, we read in Luke chapter 5 and verse 4, that now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. Now we can see an echo there, can't we, of a passage of scripture that resonates with the life of the Lord, particularly on another occasion within the gospel, but which has already been picked up with the small vocabulary that the Spirit has chosen to use in this place. So I'll just pick up a couple of verses from Psalm 107, which was perhaps particularly familiar to us within the context of the occasion when our Lord still the storm on the Lake of Galilee in the course of his ministry. But in Psalm 107 and verse 23, then the psalmist records, they that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters. And Simon was an example of that. Uh, an individual who was a fisherman by trade, probably a fisherman, man and boy, uh, was one who did his business in the waters. These, verse 24, see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. He saw the wonders in the deep and Simon the fisherman was going to see the wonders wrought by the Lord Jesus Christ in the deep within the context of this miracle in Luke chapter 5. So the Lord has said to Simon back in Luke chapter 5, uh, let down your nets for a draught, and Simon answers famously in verse 5, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Now, if uh, Peter was an expert in anything, then he was an expert in fishing, and in particular, fishing on the Lake of Galilee. 
that probably it was his family's trade and he'd been engaged in it from the time that he was a boy uh, and no one knew the lake and its nuances as far as fishing was concerned uh, better than Simon did. Uh, and so knowing that not only was it the, the wrong type of time of day, uh, but, but also probably that the Lord was telling him to fish in the wrong place, uh, then he knew uh, that this wasn't the optimum way to go about fishing in the lake. And not only that, his own experience from the previous night had told him that there were no fish events. Now, I say that it's not only the wrong time of day, but it's probably also the wrong place because that we understand that the Sea of Galilee is fed by little tributaries and streams that, that, that come into it. And that in the, uh, the places where the streams meet the lake uh, are areas which particularly uh, are um, the right, create the right conditions for algae um, to form and, and the little kind of microscopic creatures of, of, of water uh, and that therefore the appropriate place to, to fish on the Sea of Galilee and certainly uh, as we understand it in the first century was in the shallows where these streams were, were coming into the lake because in the night time that's where the fish were. So, so the Lord is saying to Simon fish in the daytime the wrong time and fish in the, sh in the deep not in the shallows, in the wrong place. Uh, and Peter is effectively saying, Lord, it's a waste of time. You know, take my word for this. I'm an experienced fisherman. I know this lake as well as anyone. It's pointless, uh, me letting down uh, the nets at this time of day. And, and it's even more you know, pointless for me to do it in that location. But, but as it's you, then I'll do it. And so he casts out into the deep and puts down the nets. And of course, immediately encompasses a great multitude so that the net breaks and that it's a wildly gesticulate and probably Andrew was with him in the boat as well uh, to their, their colleagues, James and John on the land to bring another boat because the great catch of fish is swamping their boat and the two boats together have a struggle to bring the great catch back to the lands. And having seen the miracle, then this has a very significant impact upon Simon. And there are three very significant changes that the record makes between verse five and between verse eight. So, so in verse five, it was Simon that answered. And the record has consistently referred to this prospective disciple as Simon. It was Simon's ship in verse 3. It was Simon to whom the Lord gave instruction to verse 4. It was Simon that answered in verse 5. But in verse 8, when Simon Peter saw the miracle, and its effects in the multitude of fish encompassed within his net, uh, there's a name change there. Uh, that here is something significant about this man that perhaps anticipates the man that he will become under the tutelage of the Lord Jesus Christ in the course of the gospel 
and on into the Acts of the Apostles once he has witnessed uh, the resurrection. In fact, this is the only place outside of the list of disciples where Simon is referred to as Simon Peter uh, within the compass of Luke's gospel. Uh, that it's quite significant uh, that the Spirit should choose to call him Simon Peter and give him the full name that the Lord has bestowed upon him in the course of this particular event. Uh, there's not only a change of name, there's a, a change of attitude as well, uh, that he was quite superior, really, in verse 5, saying, well, look, I know a little bit more about this than you do, and I'm telling you that, that it's not really a good idea to be fishing uh, like this right now. Uh, but once he has seen the miracle, uh, then his attitude is utterly changed. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinner. Um, and his attitude has utterly altered that instead of the assumed superiority uh, that colours his speech in verse 5, uh, there is an absolute humility in his response to the Lord Jesus in verse 8, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ had entered Peter's world, the world in which Peter was the expert and had shown himself to be a greater authority within that world by far than Peter. And Peter appreciated something more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in appreciating more about the Lord Jesus Christ, he appreciated something also about himself. That having appreciated the greatness of the one who had used his boat for his preaching, then he now knew himself to be a sinner more clearly than he had previously. There's also another change that in verse 5, Peter addressed Jesus as master, whereas in verse 8, having seen the miracle and appreciated something more about this man, he addressed him as Lord. And that's perhaps the most significant change of all as he expresses his new comprehension as to just exactly who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now, the word master that we find in verse 5 is only found in Luke's gospel in the pages of the New Testament, and it's routinely employed in order to um, depict an incomplete understanding of the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when Peter says master in verse five, it's an indication that he hasn't really fully appreciated just who it is. It's a word perhaps in some respects similar to our word sir, as we use it in modern parlance. For example, if I go into a shop, a shop perhaps with relatively high ticket items and see a shop assistant, and the shop assistant might well say, how can I help you, sir? Right? The, the, the shop assistant wants to show respect because they want to show and to take my money. Um, but whilst they are showing respect, they don't really know who I am. 
and they use sir to kind of convey that and to convey an element of respect, but no familiarity. And that the word master that, that lies behind the word, the Greek word behind the word in verse five, has, has something of that tenor, that, that, that Peter is showing respect to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he knows this individual is somebody that he respects, uh, but he doesn't have a, a full familiarity with him. If the shop assistant you know, knew who I was, they would call me by my name. Uh, Peter uh, doesn't really know who the Lord Jesus Christ is yet. But having seen the miracle, then his understanding is enlarged. And now he calls him Lord, that he recognized the greatness of the person who had wrought the miracle from his boat. And the word Lord is a, is a, is a curious word, isn't it? It's a paradoxical word, as we find it in the New Testament in relation to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's a word that one at the same time expresses his superlative position in the purpose of God. That there is none other man or woman to compare with the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, it allows for a relationship. A relationship certainly not of equals because he is Lord and those who come to him are his servants. But nevertheless... Because he is Lord and they have recognized him as Lord, uh, then there is the basis for a relationship, a greater familiarity that stems from an acknowledgement of the wonderful greatness that pertains uh, to the Son of God. And Peter has made that transition, that he's changed his attitude and he's changed his appreciation of just who this man is and how great he is within the purpose of God and having made that realization then it forms the basis for him to become a disciple that there is now the opportunity for a relationship to exist between them and there's the key points that the small differences uh, within a larger difference, but the differences of vocabulary in Luke's gospel here are making, in giving us the model for the call of a disciple in the life and the experience of Peter, uh, then it's showing us uh, that a disciple, as far as the third gospel is concerned, is one who has identified and relates uh, to Jesus Christ as Lords. Now I want to move on, but let me just um, comment uh, again because uh, we didn't note the the difference in sequence uh, between um, the different gospels, and that serves to bring into juxtaposition Peter's call with the call of a leper by the different sequencing uh, that the third gospel has used for the events uh, to um, Mark, for example. Uh, and what it also highlights then is that there is a repetition between the two events, that the same key element, elements of Peter's call recur in the call of the leper. And when, Peter, when Simon Peter saw, when he saw the miracle, and recognize the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Uh, well, it was a man full of leprosy who saw and saw specifically uh, Jesus Christ. Simon fell down at Jesus' knees and the leper similarly, seeing in the presence of Jesus, fell on his face and besought him. And it was Peter that said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And the same key change that has been um, reflected in the movement from Laster to Lord in Peter's experience is picked up in the address of the leper, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou can make me clean. So, so you know, the, the sequence has changed to bring these two right next to each other in order to highlight the connections of thought uh, between the two incidents. And again, uh, we don't have time to pursue that in detail this evening, but we recognise, don't we, that in the word of God, that leprosy is often um, symbolic and representative of sin and the human nature that leads to sin in all but our Lord Jesus Christ. And by placing the, the healing of the leper alongside the call of Simon Peter and reflecting the same elements in both, uh, then we're being asked to recognise uh, that the call of Peter is addressing the need of a spiritual leper, um, someone who has recognised himself to be morally in the situation that the leper is physically by his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to just go on further to the end of the Galilean narrative as it uh, occurs in this gospel and we can highlight in passing as we go through chapter 8 for example uh, the way in which the word master that only comes the Greek word master that only comes in Luke's gospel just crops up and is used to um, emphasize that the lack of appreciation on the part of the disciples which they reflect when they revert to calling the Lord Jesus Christ by that term. Uh, so in the occasion of the stilling of the storm, when they're in fear upon the lake, uh, then they cry out in verse 24 of Luke chapter 8, Master, Master, we perish. And again in the same chapter, when Jesus is proceeding to the house of Jairus in order to address the needs of his sick daughter and is interrupted by the woman with the issue of blood who comes behind and touches the hem of his garment and the Lord perceiving that power has gone out of him uh, says who touched me uh, then it's Peter again that speaks in verse 45 of Luke chapter 8 uh, Jesus said who touched me when all denied Peter and they that were with him said master the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee and sayest thou who touched me and, you know, in fairness to Peter, it seems a reasonable question, doesn't it? The crowd is particularly pressing thick upon the Lord. And it seems, you know, a strange question. Who touched me in that circumstance? And yet Peter, by then, with the time that he'd spent in the company of his Lord together with the others, ought to have well known that he ought not second guess the Lord. And he ought not uh, to tell the Lord. Uh, that actually he's made a mistake in asking a question like that. 
It's a fallback to the same type of attitude that Peter had when he told the Lord not to let down the nets for a catch or that he didn't think it was a good idea in Luke chapter 5. Then the use of that word just, just highlights just a failure to fully appreciate the capacity and the status of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we find it again in Luke chapter 9 right at the end of the Galilean ministry. So the Galilean ministry uh, takes us to part way through chapter 9 in the course of Luke's gospel. And at verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, then there is a transition into the journey narrative that will take the Lord uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem and the last week of his life. And the, the, the closing incident in the Galilean narrative is, is disappointing, really. It's a bit of an anticlimax. Verse 49 of Luke chapter 9, John answered and said, Master, and, and here's the same word again, um, the final time that we find it on the lips of the disciples in this gospel accounts, but Master, we saw one casting out demons in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Now, if we went to Mark chapter 9, we'd find the same little cameo in the life of the Lord and his interaction with the disciples, this time James, uh, sorry, John rather. Um, but we find it within a, a fuller explanation on the part of the Lord as to why one who is not against us is for us and with an expansion of teaching concerning discipleship and the appropriate attitudes for disciples to display in different circumstances. But, but in the third gospel here, it's pared down to the minimum that, that we just get this little incident, you know, and John seems to be really rather concerned with the honour of the twelve rather than with the honour of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this man isn't following with us, so he's got no business um, performing miracles in your name. So we forbade him. You know, he's got to be with us if he's going to have any credulity or any uh, recognition uh, for the works that he's doing. And, and perhaps there's a, an element of, of envy, really, on the part of the disciple in his rejection of somebody else performing miracles. And, and Jesus, of course, rebukes that. Now, the incident uh, reflects uh, an incident in the book of Numbers. There's an echo here of an experience in the life of Joshua and of Moses. You recall the incident in Numbers chapter 11 when because of the burden that uh, Moses is carrying then a portion of his spirit is placed upon 70 of the elders of Israel in order to sustain him and support him in his work. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, two of them uh, are not with the other 68 and they prophesy in the camp. So Numbers chapter 11 and verse 27, there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men answered and said, my Lord Moses forbid them. 
And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And yet there appears to be a contrast, doesn't there, between the attitude of Joshua and the attitude of John. That Joshua is concerned for the honour and the respect that Moses enjoys amongst the nation of Israel. John seems rather to be more concerned with the status of the disciples as followers of Jesus uh, rather than with the status of Jesus himself. And the way in which Luke chapter 9 echoes number chapter 11, uh, then brings that into greater relief, particularly by the use of that word master again, as it appears in Luke's gospel, that John should say master. And yet, did you notice what Joshua said? that Joshua said, and the Spirit is drawing attention by the echo to one of only a handful of places where this happens, where Moses is addressed as Lord. My Lord Moses, verse 28 and Numbers 11, forbid them that Joshua, out of his concern for the honour of Moses, addresses him as Lord recognizing his position, his appointed leadership that the Almighty has given him within the nation of Israel, and by paring down the incidents to its bare essentials and just focusing upon the echo of Numbers chapter 11, what Luke's gospel does, and again by using the word master as a foil and a contrast, is say John hasn't done that. If Moses was rightly addressed as Lord, then how much more? Jesus Christ. And yet, again, the record just indicates that at the close of the Galilean section, the disciples hadn't fully as yet appreciated the Lord Jesus Christ as they should. And within the context of the third gospel, then that lack of appreciation is signaled by a failure to address him as Lord's. Now, coming back to Luke chapter 9 and just pursuing the record, then we get a little incident as we move from the Galilean section to the journey section of Luke's gospel that is only recorded in the third gospel. That Jesus is journeying, he intends to go into a, visit, a village of the Samaritans, that the Samaritans will not receive him because his face is as if it will go to Jerusalem. And when they didn't receive him, verse 54 of Luke 9, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village uh, that the disciples are out of harmony with the character and the work of their Lord. His work is not a work of destruction, but of saving. 
The word destroy in verse 56, that's a perfectly acceptable translation, but it could equally be translated as lose. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ is to seek and to save those who are lost. And that aspect of the work of the Lord will be developed particularly in this section of the gospel from Luke chapter 9 to Luke uh, to Luke chapter 19. Um, uh, but the disciples don't appreciate that. And James and John, having belatedly appreciated the status of Jesus as Lord, did you notice that? Uh, they said Lord, having repeatedly used Master previously, they now begin to use Lord. And having belatedly appreciated the status of Jesus as Lord, when somebody else won't accept that or they deem uh, to be acting inappropriately uh, for an interaction with the Lord, uh, then they wish to call down fire in the manner of Elijah in order to um, address the situation in a rather uh, forceful and extreme fashion. And the Lord says, you don't know what spirits you are of. Uh, that the work of the Lord at this time particularly is to seek and to save the lost. It's not, it's not to destroy. And the, uh, the, the record, having made the, the, the move from the Galilean narrative to the journey narrative, which uh, begins at verse 51 of this chapter, uh, now consistently on the part of the disciples addresses Jesus as Lord that they hadn't got that in the Galilean section, they now have. And it's repeated at the end of Luke chapter 9 for emphasis. You know, it's verse 57, verse 59, verse 61, chapter 10, verse 1. Lord, 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 everybody, particularly disciples, are addressing Jesus as Lord. And James and John have picked up, of course, on 2 Kings chapter 1 and the way in which different individuals related to Elijah and those who didn't humble themselves uh, were removed by fire and the third captain that approached him to take him to the king humbled himself and his life and the life of his 50 was spared uh, and James and John rather think that having appreciated that Jesus is Lord uh, that that's really an appropriate way to behave but there's another Old Testament sort of pattern that's being reflected here from the life of David uh, we can find it in Second um, Samuel and uh, chapter 19. This is the, uh, uh, the time of David's life when Absalom's rebellion has failed, uh, that the battle um, has been won by David's followers, and David is now being returned uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, and one of the first to meet David as he comes back uh, towards Jerusalem is Shimei, who cursed him as he was going. Verse 21 of 2 Samuel and chapter 19. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, what have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah, that ye should this day be adversaries unto me? Shall there any man be put to death this day in Israel? For do not I know that I am this day king over Israel? Therefore the king said unto Shimei, Thou shalt not die, and the king swear unto him. So, so there's the same pattern that, that David suffers from none of the insecurity that marred the reign of Saul. 
and knowing that the Lord has given him the throne back again, then it's not appropriate at that time for him to put any to death. And so he deals mercifully with Shimei, the same character as the character that Jesus shows in Luke chapter 9. And the sons of Zeruiah, who had the same relationship to David as James and John had to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then uh, they are of a different character. They're not in harmony with the king, just as James and John are not in harmony in Luke chapter 9 with the Lord. They're of a different spirit, a different character. Uh, that doesn't appreciate the appropriate conduct uh, for that stage of his work, that it's not appropriate to be taking life, but rather uh, to be saving life. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that this passage in Second Samuel uh, provides the Old Testament antecedent for another saying of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, because quite literally in verse 22 here, uh, what... Uh, Jesus says to Abishai, and no doubt thinking of Joab as well, the sons of Zeruiah, should you this day be Satan's unto me? That Abishai and Joab were Satan's to David, opposing the appropriate path for the Lord's anointed to take. Now that's the antecedent for what Jesus famously says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, and it's parallel in Mark, that has no parallel, incidentally, in Luke's gospel, <laughs> that Peter makes that wonderful confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and consequently the Lord Jesus Christ goes on to speak about the necessity of his suffering, because if he is the Christ, then of necessity he must suffer before he enters into glory. And Peter says, this shall not be unto you. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. That on that occasion, Peter was showing the same attitude as the sons of Zeruiah, who would move the Lord's anointed out of the appropriate path which the Almighty had placed before him. But, but that doesn't occur in Luke's gospel. Instead, you get this little incident that doesn't come in Matthew and Mark concerning James and John that, that goes back to the same Old Testament antecedents, that James and John are the Satan in Luke's gospel in the way in which Peter is the Satan in Matthew and in Mark, seeking to oppose the Lord's will in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Matthew's gospel, then it's in the context that he's the Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says the Christ must suffer. So Peter says, no, get thee behind me, Satan. But in Luke's gospel, it has to do with Jesus's position as Lord. That James and John have recognized finally that Jesus is Lord but they don't appreciate what that means in terms of the work and the role and the character of Jesus Christ and become a Satan to his lordship rather than to his position as the anointed of the Lord, the Christ of Matthew and Mark. Again, just a, a subtle difference in the way in which the Gospels work out a different theme with a different emphasis upon a different role and title of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our 
final couple of minutes. I think I've got a final couple of minutes. Then I want to come now to Luke chapter 19 and the end of the journey record, where once again we get two disciples, two unnamed disciples on this occasion. Perhaps um, the fact that the journey record in Luke begins with two disciples, James and John, and ends with two disciples suggests that they're the same, uh, but we can't be sure. And it's the occasion recorded in all of the Gospels where Jesus rides the colt, the fall of an ass, into Jerusalem. Now then, we find that here in Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 29. But, uh, there's an interest in the way in which uh, then the gospel, um, the third gospel, just records this. So we've got it in the form of a parallel, a step parallel. This is a, a literal rendering of the verses, verse 30 forward in Luke chapter 19. He sent two of disciples, having said, go into the village opposite, in which entering you shall find a colt, having been bound, on which no person ever sat. Having untied it, bring it. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus you will say to him, the Lord has need of it. Now those steps repeat in this part of the record in Luke chapter 19. So the ones having been sent, right, he sent two in the earlier verses, found, just as he had said, and he told them what they would find in the equivalent step, as they are untying the colt, which is what he tells them to do in the first half of the verses, then its owners said to them, why are you untying the colts? Which is what Jesus says, tells them to say if anyone asks. And then finally, then they said, the Lord has need of it. So you've got a, a very um, carefully sort of balanced parallel there with the same ideas repeating in the two steps as you get the Lord's instructions uh, followed by the records of what actually transpires, which agrees with what Jesus has said. Now, when we look at the equivalent in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 21, uh, then we don't find the same level of detail as we find in Luke. We get that the first section, as it were, of this parallel, uh, where Jesus instructs the disciples in what they are to find and what they are to do in verses 2 and 3 of Matthew chapter 21, uh, but you don't get anything like the second half where the actual events take place in Matthew. You, you just get a summary in verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. So it's much briefer. If you go to Mark chapter 11, then Mark is closer than Matthew to Luke's account, but again, without the same level of detail. Again, at the beginning of, Luke, of Mark chapter 11, you get the instructions as to what they're gonna find and what they should do and how they should respond if anyone challenges them. And then in verses four and five, you get some of what transpires. 
when they are untying the colts. Certain of them that stood there said, why are you loosing the colts? So actually, Luke goes further because it's Luke's account that tells us it was the owners that said, why are you untying the colts? Whereas Mark just makes the point, it was certain who stood there. Uh, that said it and then Mark's account records uh, that they said what Jesus said and they let them go whereas in Luke uh, then what Jesus told them to say is repeated in the account of what they said in order to to complete the parallel so that so that both sort of sets of steps in Luke's account lead up to the phrase the Lord has need of it that again, there's an emphasis that Jesus is the Lord. And Luke's account is bringing that out. Here is a record where Jesus, very much like Solomon, on the occasion of his accession, and if we had time, we could mark out the parallels with, with uh, 1 Kings chapter 1. But here is Jesus, the greatest son of David, pursuing and proceeding towards Jerusalem, uh, he's very much the Christ, the anointed king, uh, but Luke's gospel is concerned that we also recognize, in keeping with one of its distinctive emphases, that he is the Lord. Uh, now, the phrase, the Lord has need of it, is ambiguous in the Greek text. It can be translated, the Lord has need of it, but it equally could be translated, its Lord has need of it. So that Jesus could be saying that he is the Lord of the cults, not just that he is the Lord, but its Lord, the cults Lord, has need of it. And the two disciples that were sent repeat that to the owners of the cults, its Lord has need of it. But yet there's a further emphasis in Luke's accounts, which isn't found in the others, because actually the word owners in Luke chapter 19 is the word Lord. So it's Lord's said to the disciples, why are you untying the colt? Then they said, it's Lord has need of it. And just because Jesus is Lord, Lord of all, the Lord appointed to that position within the purpose of the Almighty, then his authority trumps any other lords. And as the, the cult, the fall of an ass, is a symbol for the nation of Israel uh, and, and takes that resonance within this encounter, then he is the lord of the cults. He is the lord of the Israeli cults. And its lord had need of it and his authority trump the authority of any other uh, and so that within this this picture of the king approaching jerusalem the the, the the christ from the line of david then the third gospel in keeping with its emphasis again says this is the lord now in conclusion perhaps we can just note there an echo of the prophet isaiah isaiah in chapter 26 Because here is one of those Old Testament passages that resonates with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Chapter 26 of Isaiah and, and verse 1. 
In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. And the procession of the Lord Jesus Christ towards Jerusalem uh, for the last week of his life, as recorded in the Gospels, anticipates the procession which Isaiah describes in Isaiah chapter 26, which is those who are going up to Jerusalem with their Lord in the future in the kingdom age. The city of salvation has been appointed and the righteous nation in company with their king proceed towards it. Uh, and that's the picture uh, that's happening in Luke chapter 19 and its parallels. Uh, and we could pick up many of the details, but let's just go on to verse 13, uh, where the prophet on behalf of the people says, O Lord, our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. And the point of the prophet is surely, as he thinks of the various powers that have dominated the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and in the prophet's day for a period, uh, then the Assyrian who overran the land, and in later generations in the time of the Lord, the Romans uh, and the Herods, their, their puppets, other lords have had dominion over us, but they've not really been sovereign because they have done nothing for the deliverance of God's people. And so it is only by the Lord that they will remember and make mention of his name, because he is the deliverer of his people. And that little thought is just picked up by the language of Luke chapter 19. The lords of the cults then had no authority compared with the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the crowd would cry out, blessed is the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, the one who is the deliverer of God's people, for whom the, the Father has appointed for that purpose, that the other lords are not really lords. They have no authority because they could do nothing to deliver God's people. But there is the Lord, the deliverer who demonstrates again his authority by commanding the use of the cults. That speaks of the relation that he will have with the people of Israel in the age to come and rides the animal that has never been ridden, that is unbroken and untamed, gently within the noise of the crowd towards the city of Jerusalem as yet one more demonstration of the authority that pertains to him and to him alone as the only begotten of the Father. This is the Lord, our deliverer, who the third gospel presents to us particularly. This is the Lord who through the pages of the word, we are privileged to know and to appreciate and to recognize. This is the Lord uh, through whom and with whom, by God's grace, uh, we may have a relationship.